Good evening to you. Judges chapter 17. Sunday night through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we pick things up in Judges chapter 17. I think that as one reads the book of Judges and, I, and as we would study it, but I think certainly the first time a person ever reads through the book of Judges in, in their Christian life, I mean, you, it's very clear that chapters 17 through 21, which we begin this evening, we'll just look at two chapters this evening, but that those uh, handful of chapters are very, very different from the first 16 chapters of the book of Judges. First of all, uh, there are no more judges mentioned in these chapters. And then the second uh, reason and thing that makes them very, very different is that as disturbing as the first 16 chapters are in their own way, I mean, they hardly prepare you for how disturbing these final chapters of, of the book of, of Judges are. I think that it's easy for someone to come to these final chapters and wonder what in the world are they doing in the book of Judges at all? What in the world do they have to do with the book? But the fact of the matter is, is that they provide us with a very, very important, very, very uh, needed insight in order to understand the book of Judges Altogether, And chapters 17 through 21 are essentially the record of two events that occurred uh, sometime in the era of the judges in Israel's history. And the reason that God includes these two kind of snapshots of the condition of not the pagan world out there, but the condition of his own people during the pe uh, period of the judges is to help us to understand the level to which his people sunk practically in uh, the period of the judges and for us to understand kind of what these judges were in the middle of in terms of God's people. So we know what uh, with Shamgar and Othniel and Ehud and Gideon and Deborah and Barak and, and Samson and the others, we understand that when God raised them up, to become a judge and to lead the people out of uh, the mess that their sin had gotten them into for us to really understand how messy that, that sin uh, was. The era of the judges is, was a very, very wicked, sinful period. And uh, these two records here leave us with no doubt about that. We remember the cycle of sin that's spoken of in the book of Judges, and that is that the people would be walking along with the Lord and doing fine, obeying Him, and then they would begin to uh, become disobedient to God's Word. Disobedience to God's Word always leads to bondage. Uh, the obedience to God's Word, uh, disobedience always leads to bondage. Obedience to God's Word always leads to freedom. And so as they'd give themselves to sin, it wasn't long before God would give them over to being taken into bondage by one of their enemies. And then that enemy would begin to oppress them and make life very, very miserable for them. And then when life became, their life became so terrible that they would then cry out to the Lord for a deliverer, God would send the deliverer to raise them up out of uh, that terrible condition that their sin had taken them into. And then they would walk with the Lord, usually only for the period of the judge's life. And then, as we've mentioned before, they would get fat and sassy spiritually again, think that they could take on a little sin and it wouldn't hurt them. And so they would, and they begin the whole cycle over again. And so that's the cycle. It's one thing to know the cycle. It's one thing to memorize the cycle. It's another thing to have what God shows us here for how low these people went in, in their sin. And sin really does have a cycle. And uh, it's astonishing what we can turn into if we give ourselves over to it. So apparently these two incidents were characteristic of Israel during that sin part of the cycle where life became so miserable and, and disgusting that people were willing to repent from their sin and turn back uh, to, to God. The level, I think, that 
man can fall to if he chooses to reject God's word and to reject God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and then to replace God's definitions with our own definitions is appalling. I'm afraid, candidly, of what I am capable of apart from God. As just a pure descendant of Adam and Eve. There are very few people in this world that I look at and say, I'm incapable of that if I was in the wrong place at the wrong time under the control of the devil rather than the control of the Holy Spirit. So the reason that these lessons are so significant, I think, for us is that we are watching and we're living in a nation. God has called us to live in this nation, to be salt and light in this nation. But we are watching a nation slowly but, I won't say slowly but surely, quickly but surely, jettisoning God's definitions of right and wrong, good and bad, replacing those definitions with their own. And I tell you, it ends in disaster. It has to end in disaster. And so how do we conduct ourselves in the middle of this kind of, uh, of a mess? I, I, I don't know what you do, but in the, the world that I live in, and, and, and I, I don't think I have an uh, alternate world. I think it's the same one you're living in. Almost nothing makes sense to me. Almost no decision-making that I watch makes sense to me in this hour in human history. I, I'm baffled by almost every decision that, that I witness on high levels and medium levels, decisions that are make, being made that affect the entire country, affect the world. This one of the problems, as we've seen when we go through the Gospels with Jesus, it's one of the, it's one of the curses of opened eyes because we see with a clarity that people that aren't born again don't see. I don't say that people are doing these things deliberately. I don't know. I know the devil has, unless we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the devil can do whatever he wants with a person. And, but, but you just you, you look at what it is that's happening and you see the implications of the moral and spiritual decisions that are, are being made today and, and, and then to feel uh, powerless in some respects to change that. I mean, we live our own lives and we pray and we're engaged in these ways and praying for leaders, but, but this tells us very clearly where all of this kind of stuff goes. And so the lesson from the first of the two illustrations that we're going to study tonight is that religion is not safe if it chooses to operate independent of God's Word and God's wisdom. So we're going to see a religious system absolutely go sideways in chapters 17 and 18. When we get to chapters 19, 20, and 21 next week, I mean, there is stuff in those chapters that, are, that it's jaw-droppers. You cannot believe that you are reading something from the Bible. And it's not because God had any part in it. It's just a record of where people went. And that's a description of where society goes when it throws off God's definitions of right and wrong. Now, the tendency to think is, is, you, is you would look at both incidents, and some of you are familiar with them, some of you aren't. Forgive me if I'm not going to brief you on the whole thing. But for those of you who are familiar with that second incident, you look at that and say, that is by far the more grievous incident. I mean, how in the world and cutting up the concubine in pieces and throwing your virgin daughter out to be raped through the night if they would have done it and the homosexuality and the violence. And I mean, you just look at it and say, I can't believe it. And, and to look and say, well, what we're looking at tonight is very tame by comparison. Chapters 18, 19, and 21 never occur if chapters 17 and 18 don't occur. If God's people 
Stand strong with the Word of God. Refuse to jettison God's definitions of right and wrong. Determine to be what He has called us to be. And, and not to take His uh, religious system, so to speak, or His spirituality and think that we can improve upon it with our own ideas. Chapters 18, 19, and 20, or chapters 19, 20, and 21 only occur because of the events of chapter 17 and 18. So it's all really serious. So let's get into it this evening before we're out of time. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and his name means who is like Yahweh. And as we're going to see, uh, Micah wasn't. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And so here we have Micah and his mother stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother who was obviously wealthy, very sizable sum of money in, in those days. So we get a glimpse at this guy's character. It's an important glimpse at his character. So he is a thief. He is the kind of man who doesn't just steal quarters and nickels and dimes from his mother's purse. He is so cold-hearted that he's willing to rip off his mother, steal from her in in a massive way. She finds that the money is gone, and she doesn't know who stole the money. So what she does is she had a curse, put a curse on the thief that had stole her money in the hearing of her son, which means she probably called upon God and and cried out to the Lord that he would curse whatever person had done this uh, to her. And parental curses in those days were very much uh, feared. And so he heard that and, and it produced repentance in him. I mean, it really terrified Micah. And uh, so he comes and he returns the money. And so Micah was not a righteous man, but he was a very, very superstitious man, and he was a very, very religious man. So you, you might say to yourself, how can a man be a religious man and a thief at the same time? Well, uh, I don't know. I only know that it happens. People have a, who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, apparently they have a tremendous capacity for compartmentalizing their religious life from their daily life. I've been a victim of it firsthand. Once my wife and I we were in Greece and uh, we had to take a taxi from the hotel that we were in because we needed to get uh, someplace and didn't have a vehicle for that. It was very early in the morning on a Sunday, uh, I believe, and um, this taxi driver picked us up. And on what was a fairly long journey, every time he passed a Greek Orthodox church, he gave the sign of the cross. I thought to myself, oh good, I am in the hands of of a religious man, a religious taxi driver. My experiences with taxi drivers in foreign countries has not been good. So I felt very, very good about this whole situation. So we paid the fare and even tipped them in the whole deal. Later in the day, we needed to get back to the hotel and and basically to cover exactly the same territory. And uh, finally, we flagged down a driver to cover that same distance. He wasn't religious at all. I won't tell you why I know he wasn't religious. Just take my word for it. He wasn't religious at all. He covered the same exact distance and the, and the taxi fare was one half the other man's taxi fare. The other guy went to the hotel. Oh, we've got the American fare. And then we got the other, everybody else fair, clicked the switch on the meter, and off we were running. The religious man rigged his meter and ripped us off. And the pagan sinner was honest with us on it. Now, the mother is very, very excited about this confession from her son. 
And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. And so she's greatly relieved over this, and as a reward for his honesty, she sought to neutralize the former curse by now pronouncing a blessing upon him. And so, my son is repentant, and now may you be blessed of the Lord. And so talk about sending mixed signals uh, to a child, even an adult child, she does it. And then she revealed in verse 3, when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord. And Lord is in all caps. She's talking about the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah. For I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son for this purpose, to make a carved image and a molded image, and now therefore I will return it to you. And thus he returned the silver to his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith, and he made it it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. And so she reveals to Micah that she had been saving all of this money for the purpose that she would one day uh, give it to him, and uh, that it was dedicated to the Lord for the purpose of having a carved image and a molded image for her son. Now, a carved image was an image that was made from wood or made from stone and then would be covered with silver, and a molded image was made entirely of, of silver. Now, there's a glaring problem with this. And the glaring problem is, it's idolatry. (laughs) Come on. This is a clear violation of commandment number two in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is known as clarity from God. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and to keep my commandments. And so this entire scene that we are in the middle of here is just, spiritually speaking, it's insane. It's crazy. Notice in verse uh, 2 and then later in verse 3, she uses the Lord's name, the name of Yahweh, the name of Jehovah. And, and, and so she's using the Lord's name and she thinks she's doing something that he is okay with or that he is great with all the time She's violating his most basic laws. And the whole scene is intended to leave a child of God, I mean, slack-jawed in amazement that someone could do such a thing and then to save her life, not see the inconsistency of it. To think that she is worshiping the Lord and yet at the same time openly Uh, violating uh, the second of the Ten Commandments. You cannot make up your own ideas that violate God's commandments and then think it's okay because you throw a little God talk in. Say, what's she thinking? She's thinking just like the pagan culture all around her. All around her it was a Canaanite culture. And they had gods and idols galore. So instead of fashioning her life, determining her spiritual life solely on the basis of the revelation of God's Word, her thinking, her convictions, her practices are all being fashioned and determined by the pagan culture that's all around her. That's where a lot of stuff, I think, gets introduced into Christianity today. So he says, well, we can't compete with the pagan culture all around us for the hearts and minds of God's people, so let's just give them a sanctified version of it. This is the kind of disciple you're going to end up with when you do that kind of thing. One who thinks you can worship everything that the world worships all around us, and it's okay as long as you throw a little God talk in. 
little praise the Lord, drop his name a little bit uh, once in a while. See, it happened all the time. There's examples of it in the culture. How often have you seen someone on television and uh, they're receiving an Oscar or more likely a Grammy and they just profusely give thanks to God and some of them even thanks to Jesus for giving them this award for this uh, that they've received. And the entire movie, the entire song is contrary to everything that God is about. You can almost hear God in heaven. Don't blame that song on me. I had nothing to do with it. I don't know that he talks like he came from Philly, but I mean if he did, this is how he would. And you watch it. And you think to yourself, I mean, a, anyone that would think with any kind of consistency would get up on that platform in front of hundreds of millions of people around the world and you would hide the fact that you knew God on the basis of the content of that song. But to save their life, they cannot see the inconsistency between the ungodliness of what they've produced and a relationship with God. Why? Because the Bible has ceased to become their standard of right and wrong, good and bad. So they think that everyone can do, as we'll see in just a moment, whatever's right in their own eyes, and God will just be okay with it. But it's not just superstars in the culture. It's the same thing with parents. And she is a parent in this scene. Parents who allow all kinds of ungodliness into their homes. Allow their children to turn their entire room into a shrine dedicated to the culture. TVs, computers, iPods, every kind of video game, every kind of electronics there in, in the room and, and, uh, and everything, it, it, all kinds of exposure to the wickedness of the world and all of these things and everything's okay because they go to church twice a month on Sunday mornings. They've made up their own religion and they don't even realize it. Well, Micah takes and has these idols made with the 200 shekels of, of silver. And so he, take and he took and he had a shrine, made a shrine in his house. And he made an ephod, which is a, is a priestly robe, and, 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 and household idols. And he went further and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So Micah now makes a shrine out of his house. There's a big problem with that, the eyes of God. Because at this point in time, all worship of Jehovah is to occur at the tabernacle that's located in Shiloh. That's where this kind of, of uh, activity is supposed to be taking uh, place. But I mean, who needs to go to the tabernacle to worship God? And I mean, who needs to go to church? I can worship God just as well at home. And, and uh, God can't be serious about not forsaking the assembling together of the saints and the importance of worshiping together and all of that stuff. And, and you know, by the way, I'm just sick of those people down at that church anyway. And, and uh, I, I, I'm able to do just as well and probably a little bit better if I, I just stay at home. And the problem is, is that God's Word doesn't give that option. God commands that we're not to forsake the assembling of the saints together. And I've mentioned that because it comes into play a little bit further in the passage. Then he makes his son into a priest. You can't just make anybody into a priest and obey the law of Moses, to obey God's Word. A priest had to come from the lineage of Aaron had to be a part of that bloodline. And he just decides, well, you know, I, I can, I'm just going to make my son a priest in this shrine and all these idols that I've got, so we've got another violation of the Word of God. But I know better than God, and I don't have to take God's Word seriously. And everything about this whole scene of these early verses in chapter 17, everything about it is wrong. Everything about it is crazy, spiritually speaking. 
You can't call yourself a child of God and be doing these things that they're doing. And yet you can show them all the verses that you want to so often in the Bible that support your point that what in the world is this? You can't do this. This is what God's Word says and all. And it won't make any difference. So often they'll just look you right in the eye and tell you that you are wrong and they're right. I remember one time, and I could tell lots of stories about it, but I think sometimes, you know, the first time that it happens to you is when it gets etched in your memory. I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study down in Merced right after we started the church here. And, and so there were some people coming up from Merced, so I started doing a midweek down there. And I was teaching a Bible study and just being my nice self. And as I was teaching the Word, something came up about sexual immorality, and I think we were going through Corinthians or something like that. And, and I happened to mention the fact that you know, to, to be living together or engaged sexually without being married. This is fornication, the seriousness of that sin and the whole thing. Well, I got done with that Bible study. And I mean, I'm just, just a nice pastor. I mean, I thought this was like anything anybody would know. And I had two young women come up to me immediately after. If they had come up to me without Bibles in their arms, I would have understood it. They came up to me with Bibles and pens in their arms, and they attended the Bible study. They were furious with me over the fact that I... And it turned out they were both living with their boyfriends and calling themselves Christians. So I explained to them from the Word of God, took them to one of the letters to the Corinthians and then over into Galatians and just said, I don't know what, but here's what the Bible says here. And in fact, it's a little bit worse than you realize because the Bible says that anyone that makes a practice and lifestyle of that sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I said, your problem is not the sin. The problem is, is because you have settled into this sin and you have no conviction related to it. It reveals that you, and you're unwilling to repent, it reveals that you've never been born again. That's why you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Going to heaven is not based upon doing or not doing a sin the basis of being born again. But once I'm born again, my life will begin to characterize obedience to the Word of, of God. But hey, I have seen that. Thankfully, it's not the majority of my experience anyway, but I've seen it over and over and over again where you are the bad guy, and I'm talking about you. If you make a stand for the Word of God, I'll tell you in your families or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or anything, you know all about it. And they feel that they are right because if they were God, this is how they would do things. This is how they would define right and wrong. And I can't believe in a God that wouldn't allow such and such. And where does it all come from? Verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Here it is. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right and the eyes of God. And once you have everyone elevating their own ideas above the commands of God and doing whatever they want to do and, and consider it right despite what God word, God's Word commands, you're going to end up with spiritual anarchy. That's exactly what you've got in this, in this chapter. They elevated their own views. But you know, you can't really... It's funny how people do this because... Um, I remember one time someone was trying to get me, it, it, it was, got involved in this business kind of opportunity thing, and they kind of gave the sales pitch, and then they mentioned how to then pitch this thing to someone else, and they said, now when you mention this company, mention that it shares a characteristic that is unique to them in uh, the company DuPont. And so you were taught to drop the name of DuPont to give legitimacy to the product that you were endeavoring to sell. And the same thing happens spiritually, where people can't really go out and say, I've made up my own religion. <laughs> so that everybody would run from you if we were that honest. And so what they do is they make up their own religion, but because no one will take it seriously, they endeavor to legitimize it by dropping a little God talk. 
by mentioning the God of the Bible in it. And so this stuff is, is always going on. And so everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the tribe of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. So you got a, a, a Levite here. We're going to find out that his name was Jonathan when we get to the end of, of chapter 18. So we got a Levite. He's staying in the area. And the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. And then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. So we've got a Levite here. And what's this Levite doing wandering all over the land of Israel? He's got a responsibility to God. The Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, was raised up by God to provide the physical labor to assist the priests in the offering of the sacrifices and the worship of God at the tabernacle and then ultimately at the temple. And so what in the world is he doing roaming around the whole face of, of the country looking for work? Because everybody's building shrines in their house and nobody's going to the temple. And because nobody's going to the temple, nobody's offering any sacrifices that God has demanded of them in order to support the priests and the Levites in their service to Him. And so now all of these folks are out looking for work. Forced to abandon their calling. And all it does, it just made the nation spiritually weaker yet. Every Christian, like Micah, who deliberately chooses to disobey God's commandments as a lifestyle is personally responsible to some degree for the worsening of society, the culture, and the worsening of the condition of the church. If he had been obedient, Micah had been didn't set this shrine up, didn't do his own thing. You'd have a healthy tabernacle. You'd have a healthy worship system. You'd have a healthy influence within the country. But people are making up their own religion during the period of, of the judges, and this is what you get. Well, Micah finds out that this guy's a Levite, and a Levite's about as close to a priest as he's going to get. And, and so... He, this is better than his son is priest, kind of a situation that he's in the middle of. And, and so he said to him, he's going to give him a job offer, where are you from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. I'm looking for a place to earn a living. Micah said to him, you dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. You can't make a Levite a priest. They've got to be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest according to God's Word. He doesn't care about that. I'll make a Levite a priest. I, I want you to be a father and a priest to me. I'll give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. I'll give you room and board, ten shekels of silver a year for pocket money, and I'll give you a, a new set of clothes every single year. And so the Levite, he went in. He accepted the job offer. And then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. And so Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that God will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. I hope Shlomo, two houses down, and finds out I've got a Levite for a priest, and he's still using one of his sons. So the whole thing is superstition. He figures that now that he's got a Levite as a priest, that God is, it's going to force God to bless him, even though all of it is completely disobedient to God's Word, forbidden by God. Everything about the scene is wrong. Everything about the scene is wrong. So we look at it and we read it for the most part. Probably, I don't know how many Jewish people we have in the audience here tonight, but the overwhelming majority of us are Gentiles. 
simply means that we're non-Jews. So we read through it and say, oh, gosh, a Jew who's familiar with the law of Moses looks at this chapter and says, wow, how far away from God's standard can you possibly be? And, and, and still consider yourself to be in relationship with God. Chapter 18. In those days there was no king in Israel, so there was no unified, recognized, godly uh, uh, leadership in the land at the time of the judges. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the, the, this Dan was one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they start searching around for another part of Israel for them to, uh, to uh, settle, and they're seeking an inheritance, we're told there in verse 1. So they're looking for a new piece of land to settle in, other than the one that had been given to them by Joshua. Why did they need new land to settle in? Here's the reason why. At the time of Joshua, when everyone was told to go into their section of the land that they had inherited, the Danites went into their section, and they did not dispossess the land uh, from the Amorites, which God had commanded them to do. They're unwilling to do it. They didn't have the faith or the will to do it. Following that particular point in history, the Philistines then came in, began to conquer that part of the world. And so now the Danites are being crowded out of their land. And rather than operating on the basis of faith and obedience to God's Word and hard work and do what's necessary to take possession of the portion of the land that God had given to them, they're just going to abandon the land and say, that's too much work. Let's go find another section of Israel that we can conquer that will be a little bit easier for us. So this tells us a little bit about uh, their character. And, and they're going to cause all kinds of problems. You think about how many problems are created among God's people by people who are unwilling to do what God has called them to do because it's too hard. And so they look over at some easier section and they decide that they're going to go in and try and conquer that or take control of that and step over as many people as they need to rather than stay busy about what God had called them to do. And so this is the Danites. This is their, their character. And so the children of Dan sent five men from their, of their family to the territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtol, to spy out the land of Israel and to search it. And then they said, go and search the land with the idea of finding a, an area for their tribe, a new area f for them to settle. And so they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. And while they were in, at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So he might have had a Judean accent might have said, Shalom, y'all, when he <laughs> came to the door. Or they might have actually known him uh, historically, and they, they recognized him and recognized his voice. And uh, so they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Uh, what do you have here? And he said, thus and so Micah did for me. I mean, he offered me ten shekels in a suit and, and room and board for the whole year, and that's the pay. And I mean, that's doing good in this economy, I'm telling you. He hired me, and I've become his priest. And so they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey we're on will be prosperous. They're going to slaughter a whole village. And the priest said to them, go in peace, the presence of the Lord be with you on your way. God didn't have anything to do with what they were doing. And yet he pronounces God's blessing upon what they're doing. And so the five men, they departed and they went to Laish, which is uh, all the way up in, in uh, the north of Israel. For those of you who have been to Israel, um, this city, as we're going to see in just a moment or two, this city gets renamed from Laish, and it gets renamed by the tribe of Dan, it gets renamed to the city of Dan. And always on a trip to Israel, we go to the city of Dan, and uh, it is 
all the way in terms of modern Israel, it's all the way in the, nor- the most northern point of Israel that you can go to. It borders right on, uh, on the line of, of Lebanon and Syria and Israel. And it is a beautiful part of Israel. They've gone all the way to the north now of Israel. One of the sources, one of the three sources of the Jordan River comes right up out of the ground near the city of Dan. Those of you who remember, it was the nature walk that we took through there. The water is rushing like a raging river to feed the Jordan River. And there's not only ample water, but the soil is as rich as can be. And today you go to Israel, the entire area is just groves and orchards and and fields that are productive with crops. I mean, it is a prime piece of real estate. So they went to Laish, and they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who, who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. So here's this village that's living in it peacefully, this city. And uh, the problem is, is they're a long way from... They're Sidonians. They're living in Israel, but they're descend, they're, culturally they're descended from uh, the Phoenicians. And so this, but they're very, very far away from their kin, and so they could be attacked and it would take forever for their family to come and, and, uh, and deliver them. And so they, they were very, very isolated very, very vulnerable in the wicked time of the judges. And then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtual, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we've seen the land. It's a lot better than where we are. Would you do nothing? Don't hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. And when you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And so they think this is a a God-given kind of uh, thing that they're going to embark upon. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtal, armed with weapons of war. They also went with their wives and children. And then they went up and they encamped in Kirjath-Jerim, in Judah, and therefore they call the place uh, Mahane Dan to this day, and there it is west of Kirjath Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. And then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish, they answered and they said to their 600 brethren, Hey, do you know what's in that house over there? Uh, there are uh, there's an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image. And so they inform them of, of the wealth that's in that house, uh, relative, you know, qualified wealth. But th- now, therefore, consider what you shall do. There's a, lo- there's a lot of valuables in that house. Think about it. So they're going to go in and they're going to rob them. They didn't have to think about it too long. So they turned aside there and they came to the house of the young Levite man to the house of Micah and they greeted him. And the 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were uh, of the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. And then the five men who had gone to spy out the land, they went up to the house, they entered in, just broke in, they took the carved image Uh, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. Now, it's always sad when someone can steal your gods. That's what they're doing here. Just break in the house and take them away. And the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. And when they went into Micah's house and and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to him, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet and put your hand over your mouth. That's a different... That's okay. That's a pirate thing, isn't it? So so they threatened him. They just said, Did somebody say something? You know, you better stop talking to us. Be quiet and put your hand over your mouth, if that's what it takes to keep you quiet. And come with us. 
be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to just this one measly little household and one man or that you could be a priest of a tribe and a family of Israel? So this guy's thinking, all right, I'll probably get two changes of clothes a year. And this is a bigger congregation. This is a better offer than, wow, okay. So they, they make him a better offer. And so the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod, the household. I, here, let me help you carry him. And the carved image. And he took his place among the people. And then they turned and they departed. And they put the, their little ones, their children, the livestock and the goods in front of them. So they start to leave Micah's house. They put their families out in front. And they put this guard of men in the rear because they do expect Micah to show up and try and re-take uh, possession of, of what belongs to him. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house, they gathered together and they overtook the children of Dan. And so they put a posse together and they're going to head over there and, and confront them. These are, these are fellow children of Israel, supposed to be children of God doing this. And they called out to the children of Dan. And so they turned around and they said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? Are you looking for trouble? And so here's what Micah said. You have taken my gods. Isn't that sad, again, that you can have your gods taken? Isn't it wonderful to serve the true and the living God and no one can take him away from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Even death can't separate us from him. This ushers us into his presence. So the inconsistencies of everything he's going to say here. You have taken my gods. And then notice this. Which I made. Would you worship anything you made? Look at this cake. Look at this swing set I put together. The creator and the designer is always greater than the creation and the design. If you can make it, you're greater than what you made. So it's absolutely inconsistent for the creator to worship the creation. So this guy, I mean, nobody's, nobody is thinking through their belief systems here. You've taken my gods which I made. Well, why would you fight over a god you can make? Go make more. And why risk your life over a god you can make? Just put another jiffy cake in the oven and bring it out and jiffy god or whatever it is. And so you have taken away my god which I made and the priest and you've gone away now what more do I have? That's a, that, what do I have? You've, you have stolen my gods that I've made. There's nothing left in my life. I mean, that's, that's the end result of, of idolatry. That's what happens when you die and you don't know the Lord. Because all the idols get taken away at that particular point in time. And now what do I have? Well, death does separate us from the idols of this world. There's only one God that we don't get separated from at the point of death, and that's the Lord Himself. What more, now what more do I have? How can you say to me what ails you? So he's getting, a little, he's protesting. He's getting a little hot under the collar. And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you. It's a very poetic way of saying, we're going to punch your lights out. And you lose your life with the, with the lives of your household. And so the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and he went back to his house. And so he recognized that it's kind of a, of a lost cause here and, and uh, wisely turns away. This is a group of men who are going to cold-blooded slaughter an entire city in just a very short period of time they would have thought nothing of wiping him uh, and his his family out and so they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and they went to Laish to a cup to a people quiet and secure and they struck them with the edge of the sword 
and burn the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. And so they rebuilt the city and they dwelt there and they called the name, renamed the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, the, the the patriarch who was the leader of the tribe who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, here we get his name, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons became priests to the tribe of Dan. So they immediately establish a, a, a system, a religious system that is based on idolatry and a false priesthood and and so they um they they became his sons became priests to the tribe of dan until the day of the captivity of the land and so they set up for themselves micah's carved image which he made all the time that the house of god was in shiloh and so they established this false religious system in dan and as we'll see in uh the history of uh, Israel here as we go through the historical books that, that the city of Dan will become the center for idolatry in the nation of Israel and uh, certainly in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel and, uh, and that this would not be broken off this whole false religious system until they were the entire northern kingdom of Israel is taken captive and uh, dispossessed from the land by the Assyrian uh, Empire so again you have in the Danites, you have a religious people who think nothing of stealing and threatening Micah with physical harm, think nothing of wiping out an entire village of innocent people, they think nothing of a false priesthood, they think nothing of idolatry. The worship of God is com a completely superstition to them and again we see in their lives this whole religious anarchy and yet they have convinced themselves that they're right with God because they engage in a little bit of religion at the end of the day or once a week at church and that goes on all over the world today and it goes on even in little old Modesto well, when we read all of this, I think that we could ask a question of ourselves. All that's very, very weird, and all that is very, very terrible, but what does it have to do with me as a Christian living in the city of Modesto in July of 2009? The fact of the matter is it has a very, very important application. Essentially what we have in these chapters are a bunch of people who claim to follow the Lord, but they have made up their own rules concerning that. They've abandoned God's instruction. They've made up their own rules, and as a result, they've made up their own religion. They obey God's commandments when it's easy for them or when it's convenient for them, but then they completely disregard His commandments if it's not easy for them or if obedience uh, requires something demanding of them. And so they only worship God on their own terms, which is essentially the worship of, of self, the worship of my own mind and, and, and my own self. What you like about the Bible, you obey. What you don't like, you just simply uh, disregard. I think that more frighteningly, they see nothing wrong with the picture. They don't get it. They see nothing wrong with the great inconsistency between the commands and the demands of the Word of God that they, the God that they claim to know and the actual lives they're living. In their minds, it, both of them, in both chapters, these people think that they are right on with God. Jesus spoke of this inconsistency of life 
and, and the self-deception that's a part of it at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to have you turn with me there in closing, almost closing, in Matthew chapter 7, because I want you to see it with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not what they say, but how they live. Not everyone... It's very sobering. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The condition is that they claim to know the Lord, and yet at the same time they are living a life of deliberate, willful disobedience against his word. This isn't talking about, I like the way they do it in the New King James in verse 23. It's not talking about us as Christians, you know, sinning or falling short of perfection or Christ-likeness and these things. That's unfortunately a part of our portion until we see him face to face. But this is not talking about that kind of person. It's talking about a person who lives a life of deliberate sin and yet they have convinced themselves that they are okay with God and right with God, even though they, they have done that. And frighteningly, and I think the most frightening part of everything that Jesus says about that is he describes the size of this shocked-on-judgment-day crowd as being many. He said there will be many on that day that will be jarred out of their self-deception. I have no intention tonight of being heavy or to lay the lash on anyone or anything. We're heading through the Word of God together and we're motivated in our relationship with the Lord. But it is important for any of us that sits here tonight, the privacy of our own heart, if you are living a life where what you claim to believe claim to know God, and yet your life is inconsistent with His commands, you've got to look hard at that. Because that's heading into the whole realm of the judges. And the problem with it is you can become self-deceived and think you're all right with God, and you're not. I don't have any interest in beating anybody up here tonight. I don't mind the Word of God digging deeply in, into a life. I don't want to see anybody self-deceived. And this stuff, my friends, goes on all of the time. Now let me truly close. That was just my first closing. Let me truly close with this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a little bit further to the right in your Bible. And I just want to read a handful of verses there, and then I think we can wrap up these two chapters. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, 
But know this. So there's something that we're supposed to know as a result of this passage. That in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I'll tell you, aren't those pagans terrible? That's what he's talking to. Having a form of godliness, the religious people, but denying the power thereof, and from such people turn away. The Apostle Paul is giving us here a description of what will be the spiritual tone and the spiritual condition of the world in the last days, that period in human history immediately prior to the rapture of the church, Jesus is coming to rapture his church, and then the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And he says it's going to be just like the time of the judges. It's going to be perilous times. And the word perilous means fierce. It means dangerous. And Paul declares that we are to know something about the religious condition of the world in the last days. Paul was to know it. We are to know it. And what are we to know? That people are going to claim to know God, have a form of godliness, but their lives are going to be completely and deliberately dominated by sin. That's going to become the norm. And why is that going to become the norm The word that Paul uses in this passage for love, and he uses the word love over and over again in the passage, he doesn't use the word agape, he uses the word phileo, which speaks of a fond affection. So the word phileo is used instead of agape because the list of sins that are listed here do not deal with the mind, but they deal with the heart. The world and religion with it will descend into this condition and into this self-deception because it refuses to make its decisions based upon the mind, but chooses to enter into an era in human history where right and wrong is determined on the basis of feeling. You live in that world. You live in that country. You look at all of the redefining of right and wrong and the abandonment of the biblical foundation of right and wrong in this nation. You watch the redefining that is happening. None of it is happening through the process of the mind. It is all emotion. It is all feeling. Nobody's looking at the consequences of these decisions one step, two step, three steps down the line. Not even in professing Christianity, where one doctrine is thrown off and another doctrine is thrown off and a bit of nonsense is brought in here and a bit of nonsense is brought in here from someplace else in order to make everybody feel good and nobody's thinking about where does this go? Where does this go in a year? What kind of a next generation does this produce in the generation after them? That does, that's not even entering into the whole process. Is what do we feel about this right now? And the elevation of feelings above even the wisdom of God and the Word of God. The passage tells us that we're to know something. And what we're to know is this is where things are going to end up. And then Paul tells us that in light of that, we're to do something in verse 5. And what he tells us is, and from such people, turn away. Don't come under their influence. Don't come under that, that whole you know, uh, their definitions of 
right and wrong or normal or good and bad. It's a deception. It's only going to get worse. And Paul says, don't fall for it. And here we have everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, applied to religion, and it's common today, and it's the great lesson of the passage. Moving away from the Bible as the standard of our doctrine and our practice. What we believe and how we live, and instead replacing it with and, and elevating man's own ideas about all of these things, and what you end up with is spiritual anarchy, and it ends up in disaster. I happen to love you people, and I happen to care about you and your walk with the Lord. This is the time in human history that God has called us to be a witness for Him. And it's a time to be very strict concerning our thinking and concerning how we conduct ourselves and to ask ourselves about everything. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And find out what God says and then obey it. That is the only safe place in this world, a life of simple obedience to His Word. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. That makes me an old wise owl to some of you. To others of you, I'm a mere pup. God bless you. Do you think after walking with the Lord for that many years with a fair amount of seriousness about all of this, I'd say, that obeying the Lord would just be kind of second nature and you'd hardly have to think about it anymore. I tell you, as God is my witness, I have to, at this point in my Christian life and in this world that I'm living in, I have to deliberately slow myself down and I'm more deliberate than ever to ask, what does the Bible say about what's going to come out of my mouth? What does the Bible say about this decision? What does the Bible say about this thing that I'm going to do? And I'm more concerned in a sanctified way about it than ever because I see the deception that's going on all around me and I see how easy it is to be self-deceived and I don't want to move an inch from this book and the God of this book because there's no other explanation for me standing before you clothed and in my right mind than the fact that the Lord came into my life in 1980. Stick with the book. He's the only smart one in this world. Everything else ends in disaster. Let's stand together and we'll pray.